Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Hunting for Candlelands. I'm your host, Neil. This week, we finish the interview with Robin Frederick and feature the first part of Mike Schwartz's discussion of minimalist music. I guess I'm going to keep the intro short this time so I can get this podcast done quicker. So here's me talking to Robin Frederick, I believe, in 1998. Give us an impression of some of the projects that you are working on now. Um, the the songs I'm working on now, um, very slowly, putting together what looks like it will probably be a new album, my right. second album, and it's called "Married to the Muse," and it's about um, um, have wanting what you can't have, and. Um, you know, for me, that has to do with wanting someone who is no longer alive. But for Nick, I think that was also an issue. Whoever that person was, whether it was more than one person, there was someone certainly inspiring these songs, and that person was not there. So when you hear mm, any of the songs, you could play any of them. But a uh, cello song is a good example, or... Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but um, almost they're all songs of yearning. Please mm-hmm. be there. Please, you know, respond on to a star, me. Please maybe. reach out to me. Please let me know you care. Lift me up to your cloud. I, you know, it, they're all songs for someone who isn't there. And the songs are that's a hallmark of, of a muse um, also this person is always um, made to be larger than life a lum- luminous um, you know surrounded with a light that's more than human and if you look at the great muse poets of history you see this you know Dante and Keats and you know the great romantic Yeats particularly Yeats the great romantic poets, which Nick studied at Cambridge. This is what he was steeped in. This is what he loved. I, I don't have any doubt that Nick was a muse poet. So I began to write songs about this um, contradiction, this state of constant yearning, where the, you create, almost create this person, as to because certainly isn't a real human person. It may be, you know, based on a human person, but it is larger than life and you project so much you know all your poetic gift and all your love and all your yearning is projected on that person of course if you ever end up with that person that you know then it doesn't work they have a you know feet of clay and they become real and the luminous quality goes away so that's what i'm writing about now is this caught you know this conflict this catch-22 of the poet who yearns for the muse but cannot have the muse and that's um, that's what uh, it's called. Married to the Muse, and it's um, it's a tough situation to be in, and can certainly um, make for a very very difficult emotional life. And I see a lot of that in Nick's situation. Do you see an album being produced in the next couple of years or something? Oh, within the next six months. Oh, I have really? about I I have about half of it done. All right. 
and if you'd like, I'll send you the the song "Married to the Muse." Oh, I'd love that. That'd I'll be, be happy to send that to you. You may want to play it. It's it is about Nick. It's about my picture of what Nick was doing. And in fact, if you want the clearest picture, it's of what I think Nick's persona was. It's I can't say it. I can sing it. I mean, that's what right. I. That's how I express myself best. And I would be happy to to send that to you. And it's a very clear picture of Nick. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And um, and I don't hide it. Uh, and that one's done. So I'll be happy to send that. To that you. would be great. Yeah, I hope I'll be done with it in the next six months. I know I'm slow. But <laughs> I hope I'm not too slow. Oh no. And if I can't finish the whole album, I'll I'll do it as an EP. Right. <laughs> uh, but you know, sometimes there are just things you have to say. Yeah. And when I came across all this last year, when I found out what had happened to Nick, and then began looking at this, um, I it just it was so compelling. I was compelled, absolutely, um, could not uh, avoid writing these songs and I'll send you I have a I have a, a like three of them that are pretty much done I'll send those to you great and um it's been a real journey for me you know to go back and uh find out who this person was and um you know deal with uh, things that I had left emotions and feelings that I had left a long time ago and hadn't looked at for a long time. Um, I, I did get some biographical information about you from your website, mm-hmm. so I could sort of tell listeners who you are. Is there I, any? Th- oh, just so I could tell listeners who you are. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, what, what, what kind of things you're working on now. Is there anything you'd like to stress or, or no, s- say about you? No, I think you're asking me about the new stuff. Okay. I don't talk, when I'm talking about this, I don't talk too much about my work with the characters at the Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. I mean, it's so right. incongruous that I do that for a living. <laughs> um, but there's so much joy in it, and I, and I love it so much, writing for children and for family entertainment, writing for these wacky characters. Um, and I, I do have a sense of humor. I don't want people to think that I'm this very dark, you know, like people think of Nick. It's interesting to me that his friends say he had a sense of humor. I know he did. And, and, but the, it's not there in the music. And lots of times in my adult writing, I don't bring that sense of humor all the time. I do try to. But I certainly express it when I'm working with the Disney characters and with the Warner Brothers characters and um, the Animaniacs and Looney Tunes. And uh, it just, it's such a wonderful, you know, when I'm in the studio and I'm saying, Goofy, do that again. <laughs> you know? it, the day I had to say that, I thought, I've, finally arrived someplace i'm not quite sure where it is but i have arrived i love it absolutely love it and i've been fortunate enough to make my living uh doing that because it's certainly you you know making your living as a recording artist is is uh iffy to say the least and and nick is a good example of it you can be the best that there is and not be able to make a living at it it's not those two things are not um don't necessarily go together uh, and that's unfortunate. I, I did notice on the uh, Sound Express site, um, somebody had suggested a John Martin song and a Nick and Nick Drake "Northern Sky" for love songs, yes, great I love songs. Yes, I love that. That yes. wasn't you. No. Oh wow. No, those came in. I went. I went. Uh, I went to look at the site, and because they told me there was a top twenty thing on there, and 
and I went to because I thought, oh, what, you know, what are they going to put up? There? Right. I had made some suggestions, but those didn't come from me. Um, no. That's funny. And so I don't know if somebody who was doing, you know, found it who is from the list, you know, and and that was the connection or something, right. you know, right. because it seems like it would be somebody that we some you know somewhere around here have come in touch with but i thought that was very interesting and most people i've noticed there's um often those two names come together uh guitarists and i don't know necessarily that people realize that they were friends but a lot of guitarists will say i've been influenced by uh, john martin and nick drake you'll usually see one if if you see the other right uh so i don't know how much people actually connect them in terms of their friendship as much as that they came from the same period of time in the British uh, music scene. And, of course, John is also a friend of mine, and, and, uh, I, and I think he's a tremendous, unbelievable talent. Absolutely unbelievable. Are you going to play Solid Air? I think I will, yeah. Yeah, good. I've heard that new John Martin album, too. It's really, really I haven't. Nice. The, uh, the Church with No Bell, I Church think Bell or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it, there's a lot of covers on there, but they're really, yeah. really yeah, excellent ones. Yeah, I haven't heard ones. that one. Um, but I know he's just finishing a new one, and I just saw him when he was here in Los Angeles, and, and he, uh, my jaw just dropped. His set was unbelievably good. Uh, I had no idea. I hadn't seen him in, you know, 30 years. Right. Um, and I had no idea how good, uh, and, and what he was doing in that set, I don't think is on any album. They were the, they were the covers of, I mean, they were his own songs, and they were songs that you would know. But the the arrangements he was doing of them were just hypnotic and sensual and gorgeous and oh. and I asked him if he was had you know ever put that out on record and he said no he <laughs> keeps his live shows different <laughs> so I don't wow know. he's he's a he's a character he, he doesn't really tend to like to talk about Nick very much does he anymore no, he sort doesn't. of talked out almost and, yeah and I have to respect that right definitely um, those are not pleasant memories for him Right. I, Nick and John and I knew Nick in, at completely different times. I met both of them at the same time, but they didn't meet each other until um, years, you know, two to three years later. And Nick got into emotional trouble very quickly at that time, and so that was the bulk of the time that John knew him. Those are not my memories of Nick. So right. I was actually quite happy to be able to share my memories of Nick with John. Right. But I understand why he doesn't want to talk about it. I, I think I've actually asked everything I had written down. Was there anything you you like to communicate or say? You did a really good job. Thanks. You covered everything. <laughs> I was. Thank you for asking me about his. I answered you asked one of the first questions you asked me about um, what what he his musical um, uniqueness. Um, and would I give you some examples of those? I answered it two different places. So the first one we talked about was the cluster chords, you asked me. Right. And I mentioned a couple songs. And then later on I mentioned the musical phrasing, uh, starting on the third bar or starting, if, if you think your listeners would be interested, the other thing that he did was uh, he would um, play in two, he would play a chord for two bars or he would set up a series of chords that would last two bars, you know, two measures. And then he would start to sing in the middle of it. No one else would do that. Every Anyone else would start at the beginning of the first measure. He would always start in the middle. 
And that's why it's so difficult to sing along with his songs. They seem very simple on the surface, particularly a song, and the best example of this, or a great example of it, is uh, Place to Be, which I also think is one of the finest of all of his songs. There are so many wonderful songs, but that's certainly up there in the top three or four. Um, and when I first heard that song, my feeling was, oh, this is such a simple song. How does he keep it interesting? So I tried, and I started singing along with it. I started, you know, looking at the chords and figuring it out. And I could not sing when he did. I couldn't anticipate when he was going to start singing. And then that's when I looked at what he was doing and realized that he was starting in the most unusual place. And that's how he makes a song like Place to Be, which is so simple and emotionally so deep and courageous and honest. That song is astonishing for its emotional honesty. How he also makes that song um, unique and fresh, it never gets old, is that he is doing something that is constantly throwing you off balance. And that's, he starts singing where you never expect it, and yet it feels right. He also does the thing with the introduction to that song where he's playing a chord a series of chords, a chord progression, and as he reaches what you feel is going to be the end of it, that is actually the beginning of the body of the song where he starts singing. It's the cleverest, most intelligent, thought-out piece of musicianship and songwriting that I have ever seen. And when you listen to the song, you'll never notice it. And nobody did. I've never heard anyone comment on this. And certainly when he was alive, no one noticed it. But he knew he was doing it. He was well aware that he was doing it. I'm sure of it. So that must have been very frustrating for him. Mm -hmm. I probably am going to uh, splice in some of the comments you said about particular songs in with yeah. the song. Just so I wanted to be sure nice. to mention Place to Be, because I'm sure you'll play it. Yeah. And I don't know if, how you want to lead into it, but it is an amazing thing, that song, what he did with it. Um, that's it. I think we, we pretty much covered right. it. If you need anything else, you know, don't hesitate to call. All right. And, um, and Thank you so much. This, is, this has been great. There's so much stuff here now to use. It'll be wonderful. Once again, thanks to Robin Frederick for the great interview. She can be found on Twitter at Robin Frederick or RobinFrederick.com where you can sign up for her songwriting newsletter or find information about her songwriting publications. Up next, here's Mike Schwartz on minimalist music. Ironically, he recorded an hour of content, so we're presenting this in two parts. Here's part one. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Mike Schwartz, and welcome to my portion of the podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about the musical movement known as minimalism. But first, a quote. Listen to the words of no man. Listen only to the sound of the wind and the waves of the sea. Claude Debussy. I start with that quote because I am going to talk about minimalism today, and you won't get to hear any of the music. And really, the best way to dive into this music is to just to start listening to the music, and that's that's really what I recommend. However, now I'm going to talk a lot about it, um, but I do urge you to seek out the recordings that I mentioned, which are readily a bit available um, and really are pretty amazing. So, music minimalism. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about some definitions of minimalism and a little bit of an overview, and I'll turn to focus on several American musicians who um, congregated around New York. Uh, who really defined the movement. And next week on the podcast, I'll continue the discussion by looking a little bit more at the roots and influences of minimalism, as well as some reviews of some great live performances that I've recently seen. And I'll touch briefly on European minimalism, uh, religious works, and also minimalism in the visual arts as well. So why, why am I interested in minimalism? So I, I've kind of followed a trail leading back from Brian Eno and David Bowie, whose music I love, um, directly to people like Terry Riley, Steve Reich, and Philip Glass, uh, which whose names I keep seeing mentioned in um, reference to influences on Brian Eno. And this also paralleled my own growing interest in slower, more repetitive hypnotic music that seems to draw you into its own world, for example. Uh, music like Krautrock or psychedelic music. Indian ragas, Indonesian gamelan music, and also avant-garde music by groups like the Kronos Quartet and Meredith Monk. Now, I was already quite familiar with Philip Glass and Terry Riley through their film scores and also through some of their most famous works, but I kept seeing other names like Lamont Young and Steve Reich after you know hearing about Brian Eno's influences and so had to go discover them. So I guess I'll start with something that uh, critics say about minimalism. They often call it static or flat, uh, but I found really nothing static about this music when I started listening to it. I found it to be slow and patient, uh, but there really seemed to be plenty going on in the music, whether it was hidden behind the melody or between the notes or just in the hypnotic drones that sometimes made me feel like I'd just taken a strange new drug. Um, definitely consciousness expanding music. It I can see how critics might describe it as flat, but it's more, it's like a minimalist painting is flat. Uh, and similar to works of art like by Saul LeWitt and Mark Rothko or Donald Judd, all described as minimalist painters, there may not seem to be a lot going on this, on the surface, but the very simplicity of the canvas draws you into those works of art. And um, there's a quote in describing the music of Lamont Young, the minimalist trumpeter John Hassel said, if you have a constant background like a drone, you can project your own nervous system against that background. You become aware of listening high, listening low, listening foreground, listening background. And that's kind of my experience listening to minimalism. I really become aware of the sonic textures itself, and soon I begin to project elements of myself into the music, which really quite quite amazing to experience. So... Although the names of Lamont Young, Terry Riley, and Steve Reich may not be super familiar to you, certainly they're not household names, I'm sure that you've all heard minimalist music before. 
If you've ever heard the minor mode repetition of notes on a film soundtrack, for example, to denote suspense, then you've heard minimalist music. Or surely you've heard a Philip Glass piece, whether for piano, synthesizer, or symphony orchestra, with all those kind of falling and rising minor thirds. Well, then you've heard minimalist music. And you've surely heard it on television and in commercials as well, or in the music of indie artists like Bjork and Radiohead. In fact, if you've ever really found yourself hypnotized or mesmerized by a strange piece of music, it's very possible that you're listening to minimalist music. So what is it? What defines minimalism? The term itself was only applied well after the fact by the composer Michael Nyman. It's kind of like things like impressionism. Often these, these terms are applied later and often by the critics of the works. Um, minimalism, it sets out to expose the essence or identity of something, uh, whether it's music or painting or sculpture, by eliminating all the non-essential forms or features. Uh, and I guess a Lamont Young quote gets at this. He said that minimalism is that which is created by a minimum of means. In music, uh, two of the key hallmarks of minimalism are repetition and sustained tones. And so one of Brian Eno's oblique strategy oracle cards, these, these funny cards he used to compose back in the 70s, read, repetition is a form of change. I find this to be very true for minimalist music, which is often marked by repeated melodic rhythm patterns over simple diatonic harmonies. Uh, minimalist compositions usually feature, uh, they repeat a limited number of motifs with slight alterations or iterations, uh, including shifts of meter, rise or fall of pitch, change of key, etc., with the occasional counterpoint or progression. Uh, and I've often heard music, this music described as polyphonic as well, since it does build upon a layer upon layer to create kind of an encompassing sonic landscape. The other hallmark, I guess the second most important hallmark of minimalist music is extremely long sustained tones, uh, which Michael Nyman identifies as the idea of limitlessness in the music. For example, Terry Riley's In C, which is certainly the most famous minimalist work, is designed to be played for however long the performers want. And Lamont Young, who is kind of thought of as the founder of minimalism, he thought of all of his works as movements in a composition that would take him a lifetime to complete, all just continuing on the ladder. In fact, one of his works, um, The Well-Tuned Piano, uh, was literally composed over his lifetime. He's still alive, too, and he's still composing it. Um, literally lasts hours and hours and hours and hours. I guess a third feature of minimalism is the element of chance in composition or performance. And a fourth feature is the rhythmic pulse, which gives energy and momentum to the work. And then other features that I'll talk about a little bit later include unusual instrumentation, uh, music concrete, uh, the use of pre-recorded tape and tape delay or tape loops, tape effects in the music, electronic effects like reverb, uh, saxophones show up a lot, or as well as other instruments more familiar in jazz, and also different forms of percussion, especially in Steve Reich's music. Mu minimalist music is also tonal, and it really rose uh, as a reaction to the atonal and dissonant experimental music that came immediately before it uh, by people like you know Stockhausen. Although the earliest minimalist tracks themselves were also atonal. So Lamont Young, Morton Feldman experimented with drones and, and, and created lots of uh, kind of droning atonal music, frankly not my favorite uh, minimalist pieces. Uh, but all the later minimalist music is tonal and melodic and really often quite beautiful. 
Minimalist composers were kind of united against Schoenberg's atonal 12-tone system. Still not 100% sure what that is, but uh, at the time it was dominant in American classical music um, and was a system. I know it was a system of music that was not pleasant to listen to because I've tried listening. Um, and I think there was a big reaction in general in the academy and in classical music. Um, some composers returned to the romantic tradition uh, others incorporated American folk elements into their music, but the minimalists defined themselves against atonalism and, I guess, overall conceptualism in music of Karl Heinz Stockholzen and Georgi Ligeti. Uh, minimalism didn't represent a complete break from the music that came before it, since it borrowed from serialism, which is the structure of recurring elements in music, as well as indeterminacy, or the music of chance. Uh, which can be traced back to the early part of the century with music of Charles Ives and was developed by Henry Cowell and John Cage in the 20th century. And whether it's John Cage's all-night performance of Eric Satie's Vexations or his own music of changes, which he composed using the I Ching, John Cage was definitely a huge influence on the minimalists. So by making their music musical language simpler and by rediscovering melody and highlighting repetition, as well as the musical pulse, the minimalists moved American classical music away from the linear, kind of self-contained, rigorously structured model to what you could think of as a more open-ended, hypnotic, limitless model. Brian Eno characterized this as from narrative to landscape, or performed event to sonic space. The minimalists did this using electronics and drones, which I mentioned before, also immensely sustained notes and lots of repetition, uh, but also influences from Gregorian chants to Indian ragas. I mentioned Indonesian gamelan as well, and definitely American jazz and rock and roll influences too. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the roots of minimalism next week, including like people like Satie and Webern and Wagner, raga, gamelan, gamelan pygmy music. But just a few brief words about the influence of jazz. Uh, there, I find there to be a great affinity between post-war jazz and minimalism, whether it's just hearing the similarities or in reading about the backgrounds for these musicians. For example, Steve Reich's interest in drumming stems from his um, interest in bebop drumming. And Lamont Young began his career as a jazz musician, actually studying with Eric Dolphy and playing with Chet Baker in Europe. Terry Riley, too, began as a, a ragtime piano player. After Miles Davis turned away from chord changes to focus on modes, what we think of as modal jazz, or scales for improvisation, the minimalist composers did something similar. And also in the free jazz movement, you can find similarities between the music of Albert Eiler and Sun Ra to the other, to the minimalists. Okay, so minimalism cohered around a group of musicians in downtown New York. Many of them came from the West Coast. And this is another key thing, um, which I'm not going to talk about, but the minimalists really brought together West Coast kind of music and influences with East Coast as well. They played in the lofts and galleries and music clubs and performance spaces of downtown Manhattan, really anywhere where they could play. And um, I'm going to talk mostly about four composers, Lamont Young, Terry Riley, Steve Reich and Philip Glass were all born within 18 months of each other. They studied together, composed together, and lived together. And really, these folks, these all men, all of them, are the kind of leading lights of minimalism. So let's start with Lamont Young. 
Lamont Young has described the slow, drone-like quality of his music this way. I think that this kind of sense of time has to do with getting away from the earthly sense of direction which goes from birth to death and has to do with static form. Through the sound of a chord, or the sound of a tambura, or the sound of an interval that's sustained, using this to create a drone state of mind. It provides a means towards achieving a state of meditation or an altered state of consciousness that can allow you to be more directly in touch with universal structure and a higher sense of order. Along with Terry Riley, Lamont Young is often thought of as the father of minimalism. 1964 is often considered the year zero for minimalism, when Lamont Young's well-tuned piano and Terry Riley's NC, two of the most famous minimalist compositions, first appeared. Uh, Lamont Young, though, got there six years before Riley with his trio for strings. Uh, Young's innovation on this piece and others was to create a sonic environment where the sound can be sustained over long durations, introducing, say, a drone or an unbroken continuity of notes just filled with constant sound. It's really, really hypnotic to listen to. He likened his music to haiku, Japanese paintings of Mount Hokusai, or ancient Chinese calligraphy. And Young, as well as all these other minimalists, were really interested in the psychoacoustical phenomenon of sound, um, ambient sound, found sound, really the, the psychological effect that sound has on the human brain, and the long-term effect on people as well when you play sustained notes for a long period of time. I actually read about experiments where this is done on people and kind of measuring the effect on their brain. Um, as referenced in the quote above, he also saw drones as the means to producing a meditative quality that would allow listeners to break through to a higher level of consciousness. Now, I'm not trying to um, put the pressure on y'all to go uh, break on through to the other side when you listen to this music, but uh, it really, for me, has, does lead to kind of a fair, fairly ecstatic sense, um, and so I'm kind of curious to see if that has the same effect on you. Uh, Lamont Young's compositions are based on a kind of timelessness where sound and light, actually light because his partner, the light sculptor Marian Zazila, would often create light shows of, of, of light sculptures during these performances. Um, and the, the sense of timelessness is that these pieces are allowed to develop and grow almost organically over a period, say days, weeks, months, even years. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the few recordings that Young has made are really just fragments of a ever-evolving body of work that really kind of feels like one composition spread out over, over time. So Lamont Young grew up in a small community in Idaho and was very influenced by the open landscape of the West, uh, so the sound of power lines, trains, the wind, insects. He often listened to these sounds of nature wafting through his log cabin home, and he says that these sounds were inspirations for his music. After he came to move to California, he came under the influence of the 12-tone music I mentioned, um, but he also loved Indian ragas and the music of Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, which really features a heavy drone sound on the tambura. Recently bought an LP by Ali Akbar Khan. It's really amazing music. Um, it's mesmerizing, and it's very similar to minimalist music. Actually, um, Lamont Young's mother, he played that album so often in the house that she started calling it opium music. She felt like it was kind of druggy music, which really does seem that way. Anyway, Lamont Young hooked up with Terry Riley, Martin Feldman, Terry Jennings, and other who we now think of as budding minimalists at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, Lamont Young, he was truly a pathbreaker among this group of, of musicians, and his early pieces like Four Brass 
came out in 1957, and especially Trio for Strings in 1958, showed the first hints of this minimalist aesthetic. Uh, mainly for Young, that involved the use of long, static tones. Uh, Trio for Strings was especially groundbreaking in this sense, and it featured lots of heavily buzzing drones and drawn-out silences. I gotta say, it's a bit challenging to listen to, so if you jump into minimalism, you should start with somebody like Philip Glass and not Lamont Young. Uh, some of these pieces go on for a long time, and it's actually difficult to listen to the whole piece. Uh, but it, it, they are groundbreaking, and his later composition, 1960, um, also extended that drone even further. In fact, that composition, which is called Composition 1960, just consisted of three notes, and the instructions written in the score, quote-unquote, to be held for a long time. So after moving to New York, actually he moved to New York on a scholarship from Berkeley, and some people say that he was actually just given that a scholarship as an excuse to get him out of town. Uh, you'll note throughout this podcast that this music was really controversial at the time. Hard to think of it that way now because it just sounds great to my ears and to and to I think everybody's ears through through the film soundtracks and everything else, but really polarizing at the time. Um, anyway, he Lamont Young became involved in the Fluxus art movement. Won't say much about that, but that was the art movement that Yoko Ono and others were involved in. Involved a lot of performance art, conceptual art shows. And under this influence, he began experimenting even more um, in terms of adding repetition to the mix and other things. Uh, in the years that followed, he formed a, a group of musicians called the Theater of Eternal Music. Um, now, it's at this time that Lamont Young began to dream of a music that had no beginning and no end. He started thinking about performance as a part of a greater work. And in his words, eternal music would be woven out of an eternal fabric of silence and sound, where the first note emerges from a long silence, and after the last sound, the performance does not end, but merely evanesces back into silence. So this is the theater of eternal music. It consisted of his partner, Marian Zazila, who created those light sculptures I mentioned earlier and was also um, contributing vocal drones to the music. Uh, the Theater of Eternal Music also included Velvet Underground co-founder John Cale, uh, who was using electrified viola strung with Fender guitar strings at the time to create that, that drone. And Cale would often play in tandem with the violinist composer Tony Conrad, who was really a key member of the ensemble. I think he was their arranger. Um, and they would also add their voices, creating kind of throat and nose tones to create that drone. And then the other member um, at this time, there were a lot of other people coming in and out of this group, but the other steady member was the percussionist Angus McLeis. Um, actually, he was in an early version of the Velvet Underground as well uh, as Kale and really used lots of crazy percussion. They also, this ensemble also included at various times Terry Riley and Dennis Johnson and other minimalists. Um, they all focused really on one, one piece that they worked on, uh, which is called The Tortoise, His Dreams and Journeys. Uh, that might be a good place for you all to start listening because that's really where a lot of the hallmarks of, of minimalism came out and it's much more listenable than those early pieces. Um, uh, Lamont Young saw that work, the tortoise, his dreams and journeys as a living organism, the work itself, that is, <laughs> with a life and tradition of its own. In fact, that piece was so long that it was supposed to unfold in different sections over days. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Young has said that he expects to be performing parts of it throughout his entire lifetime. If you do want to hear that work, there's an 18 minute version on a 
the only recorded version. Actually, it's on a Theater of Eternal Music album, um, and it includes different portions or different um, movements, one of which is called The Second Dream of the High Tension Line Step-Down Transformer. Uh, that piece, as the title denotes, uh, mimics the sound of power plants that Lamont Young remembers hearing from his youth. Um, lots of internal harmonics in that piece. Very interesting to listen to. Uh, and this was called theater because it really was theater. One of the performances involved Young releasing butterflies into the concert hall while far starting a fire on stage. Uh, but it really wasn't all, you know, shocking or controversial. It really um, was beautiful music. And I guess Young's goal in this sense was to create a, a house or a room where music would be happening 24 hours a day. And this is his concept of the dream house, uh, which is a house full of light and drones created by sine waves that are triggered by movement. And musicians would live in this house and create music, live music, 24 hours a day along with these sine waves, which would be, you know, triggered by their movements. You can actually visit this today. The dream house does exist. And Lamont Young lives there today in New York. It's a permanent installation. Um, him and his wife, um, Maria, Marianne Zazila, started this Mila Foundation in New York. And uh, apparently it's open by appointment only, as well as some days whenever he feels like it. So moving on to the next young piece that I want to talk about, the well-tuned piano. Um, I, I love this piece. I really do. And as I mentioned, it does go on a long time. In fact, the I think the shortest version is five CDs. Each CD is an hour. But, you know, you can't listen to it all in one sitting. You can't even listen to one CD in one sitting. But you've got to listen to it. It's basically a constantly changing composition full of different themes and improvisations, all for a specially tuned solo piano. Lamont Young would never reveal how he tuned his pianos. Um, it's a Bosendorfer Imperial Grand piano with this special tuning system. And as I mentioned, performances usually exceed six hours in length. And it's really one of the defining works of American musical minimalism. It's influenced by mathematical composition as well as uh, Hindustani classical music, which is a big influence on Young and on many of the minimalists. Um, it's really utterly beautiful and lots of complexity in, in its simplicity um, and just just worth listening to. All right, so very little else of Young's music exists on record. In 1974, he was approached by a French label, Chandar, to record the Theater of Eternal Music album that I mentioned earlier. Um, and there's an um, album called Dream House, which actually includes snippets from his dream house. And it also has John Hassel on trumpet um, and other folks as well. And they are performing that one piece I mentioned, the tortoise, his dreams and journeys. So you can get that um, as well. Uh, later on, Young became influenced by this classical Indian singer, Pandit Pranath, and you'll hear a little bit more about him later. But for now, I want to turn to the next great minimalist um, in my discussion, which is Terry Riley. So Terry Riley is the other founding finger of minimalism. He's equally important to Lamont Young and equally radical and innovative. Many of minimalism, minimalism's milestones can be traced back to him. For example, repetition, trance, all-night performances, tape delay systems. These were things that Riley started. Uh, his most famous composition, which I mentioned, is In C. It's famous for introducing extreme repetition and the steady pulse to minimalist music. It's still the most famous minimalist piece, the one you're maybe likely to hear in a concert hall. And, um, you know, Riley really was a popularizer of minimalism. 
He really did bring this music to the masses, and he actually had a pretty lucrative contract with Columbia Records in the 70s, and one of my cherished CDs is A Rainbow in Curved Air, which has two of his pieces on it. Uh, really, uh, this piece, Rainbow in Curved Air and Poppy No Good and the Phantom Band, those were two of the first minimalist records that I ever heard, and their improvised, trippy sound really still has a big effect on me whenever I hear it. Uh, Riley's Columbia recordings broke, helped break down the wall between classical and popular music, and they were marketed to the um, rock music as well, which is interesting. Um, and Riley's background really is much less theoretical and academic than other minimalists like Young. Uh, he was kind of what we think of as a hippie. He combined a hippie lifestyle, um, which kind of gave him some crossover appeal. Uh, and he's also a master improviser, you know, having gotten his start playing in uh, bars as well as concert halls. Uh, of course, his background in jazz as well is a big part of his improvisation. He grew up in the Sierra Nevada foothills, and he'd returned there many times over his life. He met Lamont Young in Berkeley, and it was there that he created his mescaline mix. Yes, named for the drug mescaline, which was composed for a dance company. Uh, it basically consists of recorded tape loops of animal and nature noises with people playing piano, talking, explosions, sound effects, etc. All of it's distorted and repeated on tape um, using tape loops that um, Riley would create. Uh, and, you know, he was a real innovator in terms of using tape, as a lot of the minimalists like Steve Reich were as well. Uh, after that, he went to Europe, traveled, uh, studied with European composers, played with Chet Baker. And then in Paris, he created something called the Time Lag Accumulator. This was basically a tape delay feedback system, had two tape recorders, a piece of tape run through the two machines. One was set on record and the other on play. So it created an extended loop that just replicated itself endlessly, and it built layers and layers of beats and textures. Um, sounded a lot more clear and brilliant than the San Francisco tape experiments that he was doing. Um, in fact, Riley built this this work that he created there um, by he he recruited Chet Baker, who he had played with, who is currently serving time in jail for heroin possession in Italy. Uh, to play on this recording, and he had Chet Baker play Miles Davis's So What, which is one of the great modal jazz recordings. Uh, and he recorded this band, and he recorded all their instruments separately, and then he basically cut up all the instruments and reassembled them. So you've got this crazy schematic recording of all of Chet Baker's band members um, just cut up all over the place and reformed into this kind of interesting combination that was recorded for a play called the gift and riley considers that the forerunner of nc um, in its use of repetition and kind of the cut up type of uh, method so nc i want to talk about that a little bit here uh, i'll talk about it next week too because i just got to hear terry riley himself uh direct a orchestra of over 30 musicians in this piece. And I've heard NC countless times in many, many different versions. I always come away from hearing it just in a transcendent mood, sometimes bordering on ecstasy. And not a lot of music has that effect on me. Uh, NC, it's made up of slowly shifting repetitive patterns um, full of tonal harmony that recur an endless number of times, or however long the musicians want to play, basically until they stop playing. Uh, overlapping in many, many interesting ways as the piece unfolds. Um, it consists of 53 short-numbered musical phrases, or cells, we would call them, or Terry Riley would call them, which can be repeated in an arbitrary number of times by any number of musicians and any number of instruments. 
in fact, the musicians choose when and how to play the cells, and they're encouraged to start playing them at different times. So there's kind of a harmonic overlap and creates really beautiful overtones. Um, the musician Steve Reich also played on the original ensemble, and he's the one who came up with the idea of the musical pulse, basically a high note, a high C note played on piano, which kind of acts as a metronome for the piece and keeps the entire movement, uh, keeps the entire piece moving forward. It's a seminal work of American minimalism and 20th century American classical music, and it's had a huge influence on many, many other genres of music. So prog rock, groups like Gentle Giant and Yes, Krautrock by Can and Faust, um, soundtrack composers like Tangerine Dream, and really so many young avant-garde composers to name. It's similar it's also to Balinese gamelan music, which I mentioned earlier. Um, lots of marimbas and vibraphones. It just makes it really hypnotic to listen to. Alex Ross, the uh, New Yorker music critic, has said that the entire piece unites static drones and busy loops, moves quickly and slowly at the same time. It's a great description. So next to NC, Riley's most famous recordings, other recordings, were two, pace, two pieces taken from his all-night flights. Uh, those were concerts that he would play literally all night long in the 70s and 60s, um, extended solo improvisations where he would play keyboards or saxophone, um, and they would be accompanied by um, percussion like the dumbbeck, which is a percussion instrument from Azerbaijan, tambourines, and this time lag accumulator that he pretty much event invented for um, creating tape delay effects. And these pieces, um, these... Uh, the, these all-night flights, he basically edited the pieces I mentioned earlier, the Rainbow and Curved Air and Poppy No Good and the Phantom Band from those shows. Um, they're really beautiful. And if so if you're looking to where to start for Terry Riley, definitely NC. And the number two place to go would be this Columbia CD I mentioned earlier, which combines Rainbow and Curved Air on one side. Well, it's not sides. It's a CD, but one track. And then the other track is Poppy No Good. Uh, and it's great. There are um, lots of experimental music patterns and textures, lots of synthesizers, organs, and this beautiful electrified soprano sax that Terry Riley plays throughout the entire piece. Other notable works, if you're looking to go further, uh, Keyboard Studies, um, which features kind of a dueling keyboards kind of thing with um, the same musical figure played on two different keyboards within a few seconds of each other, so it has this interesting kind of effect. Um, there's a piece called Dorian Reads as well, which you can seek out, and Persian Surgery Dervishes. It's pretty crazy names, but I like that one. That's an improvised trance-like piece. It's kind of some people have said it's a precursor to New Age music, which maybe lessens it for me, but it's very trancey. Uh, and finally, I did see a performance on YouTube recently of him playing this piece called Shri Camel which he's using this Yamaha uh, keyboard, which allows him to do digital tape delay within the keyboard. Really, really cool. And then um, Riley also was commissioned by the Kronos Quartet to do some pieces later, and he's just got a large body of work, so I guess I'll, I'll really stop there. Part two should be presented next week, and then there will be a third part about recent minimalist concerts Mike attended. 
Mike can be found on Twitter at HappyWanderer13. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Check us out on Facebook under Candlelens or Twiddle... <laughs> or Twitter at Candlelens, or send me an email to Candlelens at Candlelens.com. Have I said Candlelens enough? This final song is by me, Candlelens. It's called Soon Becomes Now. It can be found on Bandcamp. Thanks for listening. Soon, 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 soon,